0: Hi, and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. I'm Dave, and this is episode 18. Uh, This is a series of sort of short stories about uh, various incidents that I dealt with in my career, and uh, invariably a few side stories and general ramblings along the way. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, a number of things, but it's based again around kind of probationers, the, the new, the trainee cops. You know, by this point I had a, a couple of years in, two or three years in, so not a lot of experience to be honest with you myself, but um, it was deemed that I was competent enough to go onto this tutor unit to look after the, the new guys and girls that came in. Um, they spent 10 weeks with us and uh, it was generally... Um, five weeks with one tutor and five weeks with another I think there was about four tutors working on the unit at the time and it was just a question of bringing them on really and them dealing with um, various things it would kind of you know, ticked them off the things that they should achieve to make sure that they came out of the tutor unit as a reasonably well-rounded cop You know, that had done um, a good few of the sort of bread and butter type jobs You know, your thefts, your assaults and they had some interviews and some fairly basic stuff but they were useful from the sort of get-go as soon as they got onto their response teams so one of the things we took them to was post-mortems um again you know like myself only sort of two years prior to that never really dealt with death or had any dealings with death Um, and it was definitely an issue for them you know for the probationers they were always concerned about how it would be and what was the smells like and how would they cope and would they be sick and you see this stuff on the news where people put you know vicks smelling salts and all sorts under their nose i've never seen that in the police ever you know i think that's a tv thing perhaps it happens somewhere but i've never seen it um it's just something you kind of get used to generally um or some people go absolutely out of their way to avoid it you know and, and sort of get other colleagues to do it and they'll happily volunteer for some other tasks so that they don't have to sort of deal with death, but you can't get away from it in the police. You know, that's a factor of life. So we were quite lucky. We had a, a training hospital near uh, where I was working. And uh, I spoke to the people in the mortuary there about, you know, we'd really like to introduce uh, the probationers to uh, you know, death a, at a PM. Um, and also don't forget the probationers, you know, only a few weeks or months after being, you know, with me, would be dealing with their own, you know, kind of sudden deaths where they would be bringing uh, bodies into the mortuary and would have to know the procedure that we talked about before. Um, So invariably, we would arrange a tour and they would have a tour around the mortuary and the mortuary staff would talk them through, well, this is how you do that and you fill this book out and, you know, you can use these tough cuts, which are like scissors, you know, to, to remove clothing and you can do this and just talked it through really. So it helped put their mind at rest a little bit. But the big issue for them then was the actual post-mortem. Now, because it was a training hospital, there was um, a, a slab, I think they call it, sort of set up where the bodies would go for their post-mortem uh, within uh, the sort of mortuary area. But it also had a, a glass um, screen. Uh, and uh, basically the students, normally medical students, could sit the other side of the screen um, and uh, they could you know, obviously watch the post-mortem and they, you know, there was comms, although it was kind of airtight, so you didn't get the smells and there was comms between the mortician who was, who was doing the PM, um, or whoever was doing the PM, because there was kind of a microphone between the two. Now, the only thing is without the smells and not being quite so up close, it perhaps wasn't, um, as real life as it could be. Now, the, uh, the guy who used to do the post-mortems where I worked at the time was really, really keen very helpful and, you know, was very flexible as to how he did it. So he was more than happy for people to come onto the slab side and be standing around the table as they cut into the person and did the various things. So you got the kind of full on effect, you know, which, um, was, I wouldn't say appreciated by probationers, but some were like me and were genuinely interested. You know uh, definitely a morbid curiosity and others you know it was the worst thing ever so we gave them the choice they could go behind the glass screen although i think there was a little bit of bragging right so you'd find uh, the odd person would go behind the screen but mostly they would go in where the actual pm was taking place um i mean a post-mortem is about as horrific as it gets you know it's a uh, it is a a very unbelievable process, really, to start with. I couldn't believe certainly what they were doing, which of course happens, you know, hundreds of thousands of times all over the country and the world every day. But, um, you know, it is, it is an eye-opener, to say the least. And certainly, generally, there's a, there's a cut made along the top of the head uh, and that allows for the face, the skin of the face, to be peeled off across the front of the skull. Um, and that then enables them to obviously check for injuries and, you know, they're trying to ascertain a cause of death, which may be well-known or they're pretty confident they know what that is, but they'll always check anyway. But the first time that you see a face slid back across a skull is quite a shock, you know, and then just as you thought, you know, wow, that's as bad as it can get, out comes the, the bone saw, which basically looks like a mini sort of angle grinder, and they take a neat sort of um cap if you like off the top of the skull um, which enables them to then remove the brain which is weighed um and uh, before they then move on to the main sort of chest cavity which is as you can imagine cut open and then once again meticulously the um you know the organs are removed and weighed and checked for disease and injury etc um, and then sort of an all over body check but you can imagine um you know exactly like I was two years before, naive kind of 18, 19, 20-year-olds or maybe even 30-year-olds, you know, had no experience of this. They've seen maybe, you know, the old horror movie and think that they're fairly well ready for gore, you know, but when you go and see it very up close and personal, um, happening in front of you with the associated smells, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's quite um, a leveller to say the least. So I would go down with them initially Um, and uh, myself and another tutor perhaps would take it in turns to go in the room while they did it. But we'd always make a big thing of saying, oh, well, there's a nice canteen at the hospital, so once you have done with the PM, you know, come up and we can have a nice greasy fry-up, you know. It was part of the kind of banter and the wind-ups, you know, that that happens in the police. And um, some would, you know, go along with it and would be like, sure, yeah, yeah, I'll be up for extra bacon and all the rest of it. And others would kind of weakly smile, you know, and kind of nod like they wanted to be part of it but you just knew they weren't going to be happy and i think out of um probably 20 odd probationers we put through this system i think we had one faint completely at the table and we had another two or three that had to sort of rush out um you know sort of suddenly needed air uh perhaps didn't go as far as fainting but um you know and i know it sounds glib and people might think that i'm being disrespectful or whatever but you know you can't get away from death and i'm afraid if you were deadly serious about the whole subject you know for a 28-year career you, you would be a basket case so the what used to be called you know kind of the black humor the canteen canteen culture you know comes in a bit in these things and you have to kind of laugh and joke these things off to a degree personally i always found it fascinating you know and this is what I told the probationers, they were worried. I was like, don't think of it as a person. Just be interested that, oh, right, that's what a liver looks like. Okay, I didn't realize the kidney was round there. Wow, the heart's bigger than I thought. Do you know what I mean? I said to them, try and think of it as interesting rather than horrific. You know, um, it didn't always work, but for some it did. But as I say, unfortunately, if you're joining the police, you can't get away from it. You're going to come across it. So probably better to do it in this. Slightly controlled environment than the first time you come across, you know, a horrific fatal accident that is absolutely raw, or someone may still be alive but could still be in that position, which you know truly is horrendous. So um, the other thing we would do as a bit of a, a treat um, for the the cops and and to at the end of their ten weeks, you know, so they've been through two tutors and now they're basically ready to go, but we always let them, and this was always sort of looked forward to we always let them set up and run their own sort of drugs operation. Uh, And we build up on it throughout the sort of 10 weeks. And it would culminate in a drugs warrant being, we call it executed, but that's a a drugs search warrant being carried out. But it's generally called executed, at least we've executed a warrant. Or sometimes it's called a turn or a spin. We've been out to spin someone's address or we've done a turn, you know, uh, we've executed a warrant, various different sayings, but they're the sorts of things. So the process would be initially the probationer would um, basically, probably just from driving around, would have a pretty good idea of the sort of drugs areas and some of our main drugs players in the town, you know, they'd figure that out quite quickly through looking at the briefings and people that maybe we'd stopped and searched on the street. So they were building up quite a good picture and we might be, you know, floating around an area in a marked car um, and picking out addresses and you might give them a heads up, you know, this address is used for dealing, et cetera. And then once they got familiar with a sort of intelligence system, so they were able to go on the computer and check for themselves on information and intelligence um, you know, about a particular person or a particular address. Um, from that, we'd tell them, well, you slowly sort of formulate a target in your mind, whether that's an address or a person, and we'll develop it. Um, so that's what would happen. you know, And they would pick someone or an address. And we would then start doing some surveillance on the address it would be fairly low level but we'd work in plain clothes sometimes and that'd be very exciting you know for a new cop suddenly they're doing this stuff off the telly they're doing a stakeout you know as far as they're concerned um it wasn't quite as dramatic or exciting as that but that's what happened now one thing i would mention is that although we were doing this at this point um since then uh, and or quite a while ago now probably 15 years ago maybe more something came in called uh, a ripper authority or in scotland a ripsa authority that you need to carry out directed surveillance on an address so it used to be like with these probations, we picked an address or a person we could just carry out surveillance we didn't have to tell anyone we didn't have to do anything we just did the surveillance and that was that nowadays and when that that ripper authority came into being um what you would have to do is you have to make a formal application naming your target naming why you're looking at them and then it would have to go through uh to a, a senior officer or somebody else to sign off on basically um, now the only change to that was you could do um spontaneous stuff so for example uh let's say you had you know you'd had a burglary or a housebreaking, uh, and you were given the suspect description um and perhaps you felt that uh it was probably so and so from nearby because we knew a lot of our local burglars, you know. So from the description, you go, "That's Joe Blogs." I'm pretty sure it is, you know. Let's go and sit up on his house. So we might go around and sit up and wait at that address to see if that person came back. Now that's fine because that's spontaneous and it was on the off the cuff, you know. It didn't, it wasn't pre-planned. But anything more than that, if you're going out with a view to surveillance, you know, looking at somebody, then you had to complete one of these ripper authorities. Now it wasn't that difficult, and it was rare to get it turned down. But it was just a way of um you know kind of uh making sure that it was correct and again obviously we had to teach the right way but anyway uh back to my point at that time we didn't have that so you could carry out surveillance on anyone you wanted um without having to sort of tell anyone so we would carry out a bit of surveillance on an address and we'd be looking particularly at um how many visits that address is having you know is that address getting visited all day and night you know by um by people uh by cars you know things being passed out the window we go away and look at the computers and look at the information intelligence systems because chances are there'd be intel on there saying you know joe blogs is dealing from this address um he keeps it you know in the drain pipe outside whatever because you'd be amazed within the drug world you know a lot of the um you know old school thieves and that had a you know there was honor amongst thieves and you didn't tell people things but Dealers, and particularly if they felt that there was rival dealers on their patch, would happily ring us up anonymously and say Joe Blogs is dealing, and this is where he keeps his drugs. You know, uh, there was no qualms about that, which obviously benefited us. So we would build up with some surveillance. It would give them a chance to look at the intel system, and what we might do as well is, um, if we picked a particular person uh, that had come out of an address that we were pretty confident, you know, had sort of turned up, kind of had the look. Of a, of a druggie basically. And that's generally they've been on the heroin diet, you know, they're very, very skinny. You can see the track marks on their arms. They might have blisters on their face, you know, generally pretty scruffy and, and down and out type look. If someone like that had gone into a known address and within, you know, two minutes is out of the door and back down the road, um, we might then follow them off on foot or in a vehicle, but make sure that they're well away from the address. So it was very clear, or we thought it was that, that we hadn't been watching that address And we would just simply carry out a stop search on the street which we had the power to do because we suspected they were carrying controlled substances and that's all you need a reasonable suspicion that they are carrying um uh controlled substances for for a street search under sort of section 23 of the misuse of drugs act um i sound a bit nerdy then don't i but uh so this person would be searched now ideally we find some drugs on them and not always but quite often we would um, and uh, then they could be arrested and processed but it gives us a bit of a clue as to what's being dealt from there you know back in those days was it you know a big bag of weed was it cannabis was it cocaine chances are it was heroin uh, the sort of class A you know the strong stuff um, and that would definitely be our sort of our main target at that time and still is um, so uh, that would be extra evidence for us when it came to actually swearing the warrant out so um, and what would happen is we gather all this information, this intelligence, as much as we could, to say this would build up, uh, culminating in, in the sort of last week, for example, um, we would then have to, or they would then have to go and swear the warrant out. Now, the process of that is uh, in England and Wales, you basically have to seek out a magistrate um, and there's an on-call magistrate as well. So you can get one 24 hours a day, although, you know, it better be good if you've got them out of bed at three in the morning um generally it would be you know during daytime hours and you would visit them on their home address and they would ask you to either take an oath so that would be holding the bible up exactly like you were giving evidence in court or an affirmation if you weren't religious there was a few words you could say that's effectively saying you know i swear to tell the truth um you would then lay the information on the magistrates all these sort of old sayings but the reality is you are telling this magistrate him or her kind of I would like to apply for a drugs warrant at this address, a search warrant at this address. Uh, you'd fill the formula out already, so they had a kind of clue what it was all about. But you'd say, you know, there's information that drugs are being dealt from that address. You had to have at least two different sources. And also, if both of those were anonymous, sometimes that was, you know, kind of looked down on a bit because, like I say, they know drug dealers and other people who just, you know, don't like the person or whatever would ring up anonymous information falsely about people. So it always helps if you could, uh, if the probationer was kind of well briefed before they went in that they'd say, you know, there's information they're dealing. And then they'd say, um, we carried out surveillance on the address. And during one day over period of an hour, there was eight separate visits to that address, uh, we then followed one of those visits off, carried out a stop search. And the person was in possession of heroin, you know, they were arrested and processed, um, there's also, you know, two or three bits of Intel suggesting they're, they're dealing. Um, you know, and, and whatever you had, basically, um, and after that, the magistrate would decide whether they thought there was enough um, evidence to to issue a drugs warrant. Um, generally, they did. I'd say like 95% of the times. Occasionally, you'd get the odd, you know, cheeky cop turning up on a bit of a fishing trip with some very flimsy evidence, and uh, the magistrates, you know, they weren't stupid. They'd see straight through it and say, no, I'm not authorizing that. You need more Um So you'd hopefully come away with your nice bit of paper and normally there'd be a time scale on it. So it might say, you know, uh, must carry out a a drugs warrant at this address. You know, this warrant is valid for 30 days or whatever it was. Um, So you'd have a bit of time and that would be ideal because then we'd get the probationers, we'd carry out some more surveillance and we'd teach them some slightly more advanced stuff in relation to thinking about the process of carrying a warrant out. You know, you don't just rock up and you know, put the door in or knock on the door or whatever you can do. But generally, you know, you're far better off if you're prepared. So it might be that, um, you know, they would have a walk by the address. That would definitely happen. And then we would also ask them to brief our little team. It would be other probationers carrying out the, the warrant with them. So we might put together half a dozen and maybe have two or three tutors, you know, or something like that. So there might be maybe, you know, six of us in total, perhaps 10, something like that for a small warrant. Um, but we get them to brief the team. They go right through from scratch. So they've developed this warrant. They've obtained the search warrant. They've carried out the surveillance. And they've also looked at the address. And what we're looking for on a walk-by is what we talked about last week with the MOE, the method of entry stuff. If we need to force a door, you know, what's the door made up of? Which side is it hinged? How many locks does it have? Which we might be able to establish from watching people come in and going. Um, what's the door made of is a really important one. Wooden doors, not too bad. UPVC plastic doors. Can be very difficult because they have multi-locking points and that's why again last week we talked about um you know slightly more uh, aggressive technique, shall we say for getting into addresses uh, that have those things um but at the time it was generally low level the other thing they like to do proper james bond from their point of view was we might have an old sports bag um, that had a sort of mesh end to it and we would cut out a hole in the end of the mesh end um and then uh, we would have a video camera that had a lens right up to that hole but it would have like a piece of black tights or stocking over it so you really couldn't see it they would walk along the street with this sports bag and then when they got outside the address uh, they would put the bag down on the floor facing the address and particularly the front door and then just tie their shoelace or something you know pretend their shoelace was undone and all that did was give us some footage of the um, the front door obviously you know and that way during their briefing they can show that so all the officers know um you know what what we're looking at which address we're looking at and vitally important i can't tell you how many times cops have gone to the wrong addresses and smashed the wrong door down you know it does happen fairly regularly um and so we really need to know certainly later in my career when i was uh, doing firearms and we were regularly asked because we were sort of had slightly more specialist skills and equipment for putting in difficult doors, we might be requested by another area to go and help them put their door in. And uh, we would not do it unless a local officer came with us, walked up to the door we were gonna do and basically pointed at it from six inches away. So we walk into the door to do this door, he or she walks up to the door and points at the door and that's the door we smash down. Because like I say, the last thing you wanna do is put the wrong door in. Now sometimes cops couldn't help it, you know, sometimes some of these addresses are incredibly difficult to figure out you know you get told it's two smith lane or whatever and when you get up there um you know they might just depending on the layout of the building or the road you know it might not be clear they don't have numbers on ideally you'd have a bit of a steer, like it's a blue door it's a red door whatever that would help you can guarantee you get it'd be half a dozen red doors and they'd all say number two on them because the other numbers have fallen off you know so Sometimes I could see how it happened, but sometimes it was just bad planning, quite frankly. Well, don't forget, you can't always plan these things in advance. You know, we had that luxury. It might be something you're trying to put together within a matter of an hour, you know. And obviously your your sort of um, planning phase can only be only do so much within an hour. So that's the front door. And obviously the other thing you need to know is the back door, because obviously the classic is you coming through the front door, Mr. and Mrs. Bad Guy go out um you going through the front door, sorry, and they're straight out the back door. So um, you you need to know about the back door. So you might have to walk down some alleys, you know, and have a look. Um, we might go to an address that's directly behind the one we want to hit, and then you know tell them we're carrying out some house to house inquiries for you know a burglary that happened in the area. Could we just come in and see? If they had a view of, you know, the premises that got screwed from their window or something like that, just to enable us to get a look on that back door um, of the premises we wanted to hit. Because we want to know, you know, is there a balcony? Is there a ladder? Is there stairs down? You know, is there fences? How high are they? Are the fences all broken down? Are they going to fall apart the second someone tries to climb on them? Is there a big drop? Now, that's a classic. Sometimes at the back of these addresses, there could be a fence at the bottom of the garden, which was about, you know, three feet high if you hop over that fence, there's a 12 foot drop. you know. And unfortunately, we've had a number of cops um, and bad guys injured like that. Um, Because, you know, uh, obviously, without that knowledge, especially at night, or if you're chasing someone, you hop over a fence and realize there's a massive drop. Um, So yeah, it's all about the planning really. Uh, But the the, the probationers always found it really exciting. The sort of advanced probationers that, that were coming to the end of their 10 weeks, they would put the whole package together start to finish then on the day they would brief us and we would and they would decide how we did it because there was different options as well so for example if we had information that we did one where we had information that the front door was really well secured now we were just doing basic method of entry at that point so we're talking just a big red key and enforcer you know we're basically going to hit the door and smash it down but we had good info that there was kind of three steel bars you know behind this door and that no one was getting through it i think it had a security grill on it as well so it, it could have been done, but you know, it, it would have been more specialist than we were, that's for sure. Uh, and the other thing is sometimes, of course, people put these massive, you know, effective front doors on and you think, wow, I'm never getting that. And they're bragging, no cops getting through my door. And you go around the back and it's like a thin, you know, wooden door with a single glazed piece of glass in it that you just tap with your baton you know, and reach in and open the door handle. You know? So quite often people forget that you, know, you can come in multiple ways into an address so uh, yeah they need to figure out so on that case uh, this, this probationer had set his heart on doing this particular address we had all the information all the intel we'd done the surveillance we got the warrant um, then late on this information came in that the front door was uh, really really secure like massively over secure um so he was really sort of downhearted he was like i don't think we can do it you know so well, hang on a sec you know let, let's have a think about this is that, is that the only way in? What other ways in are there? You know, well, there's a front window. Yeah, okay, we we'll, we won't rule that out because you know coming through a front window is possible. We've got the hooli bar, which is this big metal spike that you can basically hit the glass with, shatter it, and go in through the window if you have to, especially if you can justify why you're doing it. The front door so secure, the windows, you know, much easier option. But I said, you know, let's have a look around. We had a look at the back door, and that was also quite well secured. So I said, well, how are we going to do it? You know, have a think. So you try and get them to think a bit laterally um and and you kind of lead them down a path you'd be like um oh you know do you have do you have any parcels delivered to your address and stuff when you where you live at home and of course they're looking at you going well, well yeah of course i do you know posty brings one or the courier or whatever right fine and and, and how do you get that parcel and they're like, what do you mean how do you get that parcel so what happens talk me through you getting a parcel and they're looking at you like you're mad you know like, well posty rings the doorbell i open the door and i say thank you very much and take my parcel and you're like right just slow down what's the second part well i open my door Really, so you open your door. So, how about if we had a friendly courier, let's say you, for example, meaning the probationer, dressing up, you know, as a courier? Well, obviously, you know, like posties had a uniform, but couriers, you know, obviously could wear anything. So, all you needed was a fluorescent jacket, a clipboard, you know, maybe a hat. Um, we generally tried to avoid royal mail um, uniforms and things. We did have them, but we avoided them because. We didn't want to drop the posties in it because obviously the posties would then have to go back to this address and deliver normal mail at some point. So we didn't want the the posties to start getting attacked, you know, because they were wrongly believed they were cops, you know, about to do a drugs warrant. So invariably we took the courier route. So of course their little eyes lit up when they said, "Oh wow, what? So I can play like courier?" Exactly. Go up with your clipboard. We'll find you a moody, you know, parcel. You stick it under your arm. Tap on the door. Hi, is Mr. Blogs in? You know. I uh, got a parcel for him. You know, sometimes a bit suspicious. I didn't order anything. Oh, right. Okay. I'll take it away again. But people can't help themselves. Like, oh, oh no, hang on. Don't be too hasty, you know. Um, so uh, anyway, that's, that's what happened. And of course, we came up with a plain van. And on this particular day, it was a great job. We had like kind of eight of us in the back of this plain white, you know, small van. And um, it pulled up outside the address with the courier, which was our probationer driving it parks up outside the address we're all set in our full kit with uh because i was doing the moe so i'd like the nato helmet with the visor and the big red key ready to go and uh, the other tutor you know sort of had the the hooli bar should we need to sort of divert and change to smashing a window or something we had all our kit on so we looked the part all the pads and all that and the rest of the probationers were all going to be gaggle behind us and the plan was you know obviously come to the door and we would charge in and that's exactly what happened it was a great job um it went absolutely smooth as you like so he goes up he knocks on the door sure enough mr blogs opens the door um and then because he's saying so the probation is like well, what do i do he opens the door what do i do then i said well we're going to be like 10 seconds behind you so the second we see that um door opening we'll be with you you know but in the end what we said to him was as soon as the door opens just drop your clipboard by mistake you know and you bend down and pick it up that'll give you five seconds and in that five seconds we'll be out the van and up to you and that's exactly what happened it was clockwork it was fantastic so sure enough door opens he drops his clipboard he bends over he's like oh sorry you know silly me and as he bends down slowly to pick this up there's 10 of us charging up the path so we didn't need to do moe nothing like that and the other thing was that as soon as he saw the door crack on the um on the van that we were coming out of he stood up and put his foot in the door and while the bloke's going what are you doing what you know the second it it's taken him or so to go, get your foot out my door. What are you doing? You know, we're on him, basically. We're up the path and coming and he knows what's coming. So it was fantastic. We got into the address and we carry out a search warrant. And that's a process as well, obviously. Um, there's a thorough search carry out of the address. You know, you, you can't imagine all sorts of sneaky places that people hide things, but we do our best. We uh, almost certainly have lined up a drugs dog as well because they'll go through first to give us an indication where to look. You know, it can save you a lot of time. Um, There's paperwork to be filled out, and then when you seize exhibits or productions, they need to be formally documented. And what we generally do is, um, the person would be detained during the search. They'd be handcuffed. We'd search an armchair, for example, to make sure there was nothing in it, no weapons, no drugs. Then the person who lives at the address, Joe Bloggs, gets sat down in the seat, um, and a cop stays with him while we then carry out the search around him. And he or she will follow us in handcuffs to the different uh, rooms, just so that there can be no, you know, uh, comeback later on of, oh, you planted that, which of course is the classic. Um, so that's the process. And on this particular day, I think we got about 10 wraps of heroin or something like that. So it was a nice little job, you know, bearing in mind, this is a probationers first drugs warrant. And up until now, they've probably, you know, seized a little bit of cannabis and maybe a bit of heroin or something. Um, but for them to have a successful drugs warrant, you know, and seize, um you know 10 bags of heroin and then there's subsequent intel reports to go on afterwards to say I executed a warrant at this address Joe Blogs was arrested we found 10 bags of heroin and we found it you know in a in a pot that was kept in the fridge you know marked yogurt or whatever you know um and that's all useful because again I guarantee that a year down the line somebody else will be looking to do a warrant at his new address and when they look on the system they'll see exactly that So one of the places they might be heading is the fridge to start with so it's all good stuff Um, but interestingly on this day we finished this job and i think the probationer who'd actually done it who was all chuffed um was uh he was sort of one of the ones who was in his 10 weeks who'd arranged it now at the time i was looking after one of the newer ones who had three or four weeks and um we were in uniform there was a mixture of uniform and plain clothes uh, and a burglary came in around the corner. So I said to this new probationer, uh, a girl, you know, well, I will take that. You've not done a burglary yet. It's just around the corner. We'll we'll take that on the way back, sort of thing, you know. So so that worked out quite well. So we head round to this burglary, and it was the start of a really strange series of burglaries. So burglary is a horrible offence. Um, you know, hopefully you've never been burgled, but if you have, they call it different things: burgling, you know, housebreaking in Scotland, America, you know, home invasion, that sort of thing. Um, But it's a real invasion of your privacy. You know, your house is your castle and it's the place you're meant to feel safe in. Um, But unfortunately, once that's been violated, you know, it's really, really unpleasant. Um, So uh, a difficult one. Anyway, we've been to this burglary and sometimes you walk into addresses that had been, you know, literally turned upside down. There was stuff everywhere. And a couple of occasions I'd walked in this place just looked like someone had thrown a hand grenade in, in the room or in the building, you know, just every room had stuff everywhere and was such a mess, you know, you wouldn't believe it. And uh, you said, to, I said to the guy, you know, wow, you know, they've really made a mess, haven't they? literally turned it upside down and he kind of looked at me and was like, what do you mean? You know, and I said, well, you know, the mess. And he was like, oh no, it, it always looks like this, you know? <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, you're right, awkward, sorry about that. Um... So, uh, yeah, that could be a bit embarrassing. You know, you had to be careful with that stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, so we go to this warrant and it was a relatively tidy, sorry, we go to this burglary and it was a relatively tidy search. You know, there wasn't an awful lot had been taken, um, but bizarrely, the burglar had chosen to, uh, there's no nice way of putting this, basically have a crap in the corner of the room, like in the lounge, you know, and this was a nice address, you know, clean and tidy. Um, it was a tidy search. Apart from the fact he'd had a crap in the corner of the room and then he'd used the uh, curtains to wipe his backside, which I'd never seen before. You know, and of course, when we took all the details, obviously there was photos and we went back and spoke to CID because at the time, uh, burglaries were automatically dealt with by CID. It's not necessarily the case now, but um, so it was... Uh, It was a bizarre one, but it started off a series of where he actually did about a dozen burglaries, and that was his MO, his modus operandi. That was, so that's Latin for basically how he does his crime. Um, And his MO was he always took a dump in the corner of the room and then wiped his backside on the curtains. Now, you might be thinking, oh, DNA, you know, could get him. But at the time, DNA was still fairly new, and although it was there and it was useful, um, from feces, DNA is very difficult. I think it's something to do with sort of dead cells or, you know, the fact that it's a waste product or something Now you can do it. And now I think they can do it much easier. But at the time, I think they could do it, but they literally were so difficult and expensive that they generally reserved it for things like uh, murders, you know, so they didn't do the DNA on this guy. And also don't forget that the DNA um, sort of database was very small. Hardly anyone was on it at that point because we'd only just started sort of taking DNA permanently, you know, um, so a very bizarre burglary and this poor probation who, who was about five weeks in the job kind of looked at me and was like, is this normal? You know, I was like, no, you know, I've never seen or heard of this. And even, you know, grizzled old DCs that we went to see in the DS who had a lot of service um, were kind of saying, how bizarre, you know, I've never seen or heard of this. But anyway, he did about a dozen burglaries in the area that eventually got caught. Um, I think it was a series of sort of nighttime patrols and they just sort of literally caught him red-handed coming out with a dress almost with a swag bag and a stripy top on, you know, but, um, and he admitted that the lot, you know, but there was never really a a reason, you know, that, that was, that he came up with as to why he did this, but uh, yeah, very bizarre series. So anyway, I think that'll do it for today. Um, Not really one story in there, a series of ramblings, like I said at the beginning, I think that pretty much covered it. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, next week we'll talk about uh, some more, have some more stories for you. Thanks very much for the downloads, continuing well on the various places, YouTube and the, all the sort of podcast platforms, I think we're on there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going okay. So I hope you're enjoying it. Thanks very much. Take it easy.